Hello, Falava, you have tuned into Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up on our show. When someone like Posey Parker comes to New Zealand, what she essentially does is normalizes the hatred towards queer people. Reactions of Posey Parker's entry into New Zealand intensifies. Also, people are getting hungry and children crying for food and for water because there's no clean water at the moment. We check in with Vanuatu three weeks on since the double cyclones and later on. There are also within political circles very ambitious people. Bigger is better. Well, that's what PNG's government thinks as it looks to increase its cabinet. A Fijian New Zealand LGBTQ plus activist is calling on Pacific leaders to be on the right side of history. Following British anti-transgender activist Ken Minshall, also known as Posey Parker, who's been given the green light to enter Aotearoa. While the immigration minister has condemned Ken Minshall's inflammatory, vile and incorrect worldviews, Immigration New Zealand ruled that Ken Minshall is not a threat or risk to the public order or public interest. Shanil Lau told Lydia Lewis the decision has far-reaching impacts. I was in conversion therapy as early as uh, six, and I didn't leave conversion therapy till the age 14, and that's when I moved countries. Uh, (laughs) I had to burn the walls of my closet down to come out, and so I'm never going to go back in the closet. I'm never going to go into hiding, and that's why we're going to stand up Do queer Pacific community members face issues within their own Pacific community? For queer Pacific people, you know, it's an intersection of being a Pacific person and being a queer person. And I think the double whammy of that identity is that you can experience racism in the queer community because of the colour of your skin. And you can experience homophobia and transphobia in your own Pacific community due to your queer identity. And I think a lot of Pacific people, particularly those who come from the Pacific Islands, know what it feels like to be criminalised. Because, you know, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, all of these islands still criminalise homosexuality. So then how does someone like Posey Parker's presence in Aotearoa, which is part of the Pacific, amplify those struggles? Uh, we have to look at, you know, Posey Parker's actions in the context of all the things that happened happened in the Pacific. A few years ago, on International Day Against Transphobia, a trans person was killed and left to, you know, lie in a pool of their own blood in the capital of Fiji. When someone like Posey Parker comes to New Zealand, what she essentially does is normalises the hatred towards queer people. And as a long-term result of that, it emboldens people not to just be hateful in their speech, but to act on that speech. And finally, what is your message to Pacific leaders? My message to Pacific leaders would be, you can either be a colonizer or an ancestor, and that is your choice. Dozens of New Zealand's Pacifica community leaders and social workers gathered in Auckland this week for the Whānau Order Conference hosted by Pacifica Futures Agency. Its CEO, Debbie Sorensen, says Pacifica Futures supports Pacific families in health, housing, education, training and economic development. RNZ Pacific's Finau Funua spoke to Mrs Sorensen about the conference. So this event, could you explain what it is? What's yes. the purpose? Thank you. So this is the Pacifica Futures Final War Commissioning Agency Conference and it's the first conference that we've held since 2019. 
Uh, and our theme for the conference is navigating new waters, which is so appropriate after all of the rain that we've had uh, that God has sent us. The theme for the conference is uh, really fitting. We have got 350 people here, and I think that what that tells us is that that need for connection after such a long time of being apart is really important. But also we have spent the morning reflecting on the progress over nine years, um, the investment of $157 million over the last nine years into our communities and our partners, um, our 50, uh, 56 partners that we work with all the time and our uh, additional 38 partners that we worked with over the COVID response. And we have also been reflecting this morning on how we have faced the challenges, particularly in the last six months with the floods in Auckland and the flooding in the Hawke's Bay. And who's attending this conference? We have partners from Northland all the way down to Invercargill. And so people from all over the country are here. We have community leaders. We have faith-based leaders. Uh, We're very blessed to have a number of church ministers with us today uh, to guide us spiritually. It is just fantastic to see the broad variety of people um, who have come along today, but also the opportunity to thank people for their service uh, and for the work that they have done with our families. Over 70,000 families have been impacted by the work that the group has done, and we have connected over the last nine years Uh, with 96% of our Pacific community in one way or another. And so it really speaks to the value that our Pacific navigators and health and social service workers add to families' lives. Could you expand on on that a bit, Um, how this Pacific specific health service, how it improves health outcomes for the Pacifica community in New Zealand? Yes, and so what's really interesting is that all people who are in our partner network are, you know, professionally trained and qualified. Uh, So our Whanawara navigators, for example, are trained in that work, but the extra thing that they bring is the understanding of the context and the way that we live our lives as Pacific people. Because if you are really going to stand alongside families and make a difference, then you need to understand how our families work. Um, If I give you an example, the whole of the health system in New Zealand is based on individual episodes of care. You know, a person sees a doctor. And as we well know, uh, for example, in my own family, my mother is 91 Um, We are collectively responsible for my mother's health and welfare. It's not about her going to see the doctor on her own. Goodness gracious, that would never happen Um, because we all have a part to play in her health and making sure that her health outcomes are good. And so I think the real superpower that we have is not only is our workforce collectively well-trained and skilled and experienced, but our workforce also understands our people very well. They have language skills, uh, they have you know, kinship connections, and they are trusted by our families. Manuatu's Climate Change Minister says dry rations should reach everyone in the country's worst-affected areas by the end of this week. 
It follows severe back-to-back cyclones thrashing the country about three weeks ago. Streams that are also used for drinking water have been polluted from debris and power is still down in some places. Caleb Fotheringham has the story. The Minister of Climate Change, Ralph Regan-Vanu, warns there will be a lot of hardship as people wait for their crops to return. His message comes as food supplies are delivered around Vanuatu's worst-hit provinces, Shefa and Tafia. Alisa Numake from the island of Tana in Tafia province says gardens have been destroyed. People are getting hungry and children crying for food and for water because there's no clean water at the moment. And we have no houses and the people only build the temporary shelters for sleeping. And no houses yet in some rural areas in Tana. Access to clean water is also a problem. We normally get the water from the, the running rivers, but now like the rivers are very dirty and we have the water for the supply, but it's not safe to drink. So Neil Ram from Vanuatu's Red Cross says water and shelter are the most pressing issues. Mr Ram says it could take months before the streams are safe for drinking again. The two most urgent needs are shelter and access to clean and safe drinking water. Shelter because most of the houses have been damaged and some have been completely destroyed by the strong winds and some have been actually swept out to sea because of the flood. Minister Regan Vanu says people have been frustrated while waiting for supplies. It's not really ideal, but it's still within the time frame we've set, which is three weeks from the cyclone, and that three weeks ends at the end of this week. So if we get everybody some food by the end of this week, which it looks like we will, then uh, we're still within our set time frame. Mr Regan Vanu says the main food push started in the middle of last week and was based on the country's damage assessments. He says only a small amount of supplies were handed out in the immediate aftermath of the cyclones. Mr Regan Vanu says there has been logistical issues getting the food distributed and that assessments were difficult because some communication systems were down. Of course, as with every disaster of this magnitude, there's a lot of frustration with the ability of the government and other partners to respond in a timely manner. But that's just issues of capacity within the government and our donor partners. Meanwhile, Tana is in need for more electrical equipment. Director of Energy at the Department of Climate Change, Anthony Gare, says several transformers are still down. There's damages, uh, some of which are minor, some of which are major. However, we've managed to restore power Back to say 80%, we have three transformers that are still down at the moment that needs major works to be done so that we can switch the transformers back on. He says he expects about two weeks of work is left on Tana if the appropriate equipment arrives. The island of Efate has 72% of its power back and the managing director of the country's biggest electricity supplier says the repairs should be complete by the end of next week. Significant changes are being planned for the parliament in Papua New Guinea, with the government wanting a bigger cabinet and five additional MPs. To increase the size of the executive, the government first needs to change the relevant legislation. At the moment, cabinet is restricted to 32 members, though there are a number of vice ministers. Prime Minister James Marape wants a 38-member cabinet, which has drawn local criticism as an unnecessary additional cost at a time when the country is struggling financially. Don Wiseman spoke with RNZ Pacific's PNG's correspondent, Scott Waide, about the motivations for Mr Marapi's change. 
two sides to it. Um, one, they have a legal requirement to increase the number of cabinet members. I mean, they, they have the opportunity to increase number of cabinet members because they've increased the number of seats in parliament. So the numbers in cabinet have also to be have also need to be increased to cater for that increase. Now the other the other thing is it's as uh, in previous experiences it's used as a, a leverage to keep members uh, intact. You know, keep numbers intact. So all of that is in play right now. And openly, the government won't say that this is a political tool, a political leverage that's being used to hold people intact. The official explanation is that there's this legal requirement that we have to increase cabinet. So all of that uh, is at play right now. The government, of course, in PNG is forever thinking about potential votes of no confidence. One can't be bought, I think, for more than a year at this stage because of the grace periods built into the Constitution. But they are, I know that locally there have been accusations the government's doing this just to ensure that it has the numbers ahead of any vote of no confidence. Yeah, a, a vote of no confidence at this stage, I mean, realistically speaking, is highly unlikely. But, you know, there's always discontent within government circles. You know, there's there's always this veiled threat by certain groups, certain MPs that if you don't do this, we will create this kind of instability. Now, always this veiled threat that exists. Now, you have to, as a prime minister, as a deputy prime minister, as senior members of cabinet, you have to manage that. There are also within political circles, very ambitious people and some who've been in politics for very long, some who've come into politics who want to make a make a mark. So, all that feeds into a very volatile uh, dynamic that can quickly become unstable. All right. Well, the Prime Minister has also announced that he's going to increase the number of seats by another five to uh, 123. What do you make of that? Yeah, the argument has been that some districts uh, are too big to manage. Uh, and, and in a sense, it's it's real. Like, for example, uh, Southfly. Southfly is, is a massive, massive land mess. It's always been a difficult province to manage. There are some districts that have been split up because of political pressure and the demands from groups of people that want to have their own district and want to be in charge of their own destiny, so to speak. So all that in a, in a country with 800 languages and different tribal groups, tribal different mindsets, it, it's a, you have to manage that in, in, in some way. So the breaking up provinces, large provinces into smaller districts has been one way that the government has has tried to manage it and hold hold the country together uh, and hold the politics together so uh, the long-term effect of it we're, we're not too sure how it will turn out there are other provinces that have already called for autonomy financial autonomy like morbe and also bougainville's achieved its political autonomy uh, then you've got other islands, provinces who want financial autonomy because they, f- they feel that a lot of the money is being spent on the mainland. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs or download for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team that made this episode the best one yet, till fast way forward.